Hi, everyone. I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum where experts provide clear, data-driven insight into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. On this podcast, we will discuss the three things Congress must do by the end of this year, the long-term budget outlook, and a little bit about what it is like to testify before Congress. Joining us will be Gordon Gray, the Director of Fiscal Policy here at the American Action Forum. Gordon, thank you for joining us today. Sure thing. Thank you for having me. So we know Congress isn't likely to tackle anything new before the next presidential election, but there are a number of outstanding tasks that absolutely have to get done. Can you give us a rundown of what those are? Sure. There are essentially three, and the last one is actually more of a a grab bag of sort of smaller priorities that just need some kind of congressional attention. But the the first two are pretty significant and substantial. Uh, I'll address them sort of chronologically. The first one is the debt limit. We have already reached the statutory debt limit, and now Treasury is deploying, conventionally have been called their extraordinary authorities, this um, sort of bag of accounting tricks that the Treasury gets to use so that we can pay our bills until essentially those authorities are run out and then you really hit the debt limit. That'll happen sometime in the fall. Um, but we've already sort of essentially started to have to run the clock on the debt limit. The second one is, of course, funding the federal government next year. I think everybody would hope that we avoid another government shutdown that was just universally bad and we shouldn't do that anymore. <laughs> That's sort of the next next challenge. Uh, there are a lot of considerations to uh, to um, ob- observe there. The the first is is just we need to avoid a, a shutdown. The second question is how do we think about funding priorities for the, the defense uh, apparatus, national security? It's a dangerous world. Going back to essentially sequestration levels would take about seventy billion dollars off the table for the defense department and other defense activities. And then you have to consider our domestic discretionary priorities. Going back to um, the statutory budget control act caps would take about fifty billion dollars off the table for for those programs. So that combined, you're looking at one hundred and twenty billion dollars, and uh, those would fund you know real real priorities. And the other thing is that's about half a percentage point of GDP. Uh, so there's some programmatic considerations, and then there is an economic component here that we shouldn't ignore because who knows what GDP is going to look like uh, when it comes out in July. I mean, yeah, well, my expectation is that we, we've got a growing economy, but there's some risk there. Um, so policy risk is certainly one of them. Yeah, that, so those are the first two. And then the, the last is just a handful of programs that just need uh, reauthorization. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk about each of those a little bit more in turn. Um, and we'll start in the same chronological order that you gave them to us with the debt ceiling. First, give us a little bit more about what that is. Where does it come from? Why do we have to keep having this Absolutely. this debate over the debt ceiling? Sure. So once upon a time, <laughs> uh, about 100 years ago, uh, Congress used to have to approve individual debt auctions. That's because uh, the government didn't run deficits historically. And so for the federal government to go out and borrow um, you know, saying times of war, for example, was kind of a big deal. And Congress would have to go out there and actually vote on uh, individual debt issuances. Now they happen every week. Treasury holds debt auctions all the time. 
Um, so we're just in a different world. And so back in the uh, when Congress got tired of voting on them individually as um, we had greater borrowing needs, essentially what Congress did was say, OK, Treasury, rather than us voting on this all the time, we'll give you an allowance. And that's essentially what the debt limit um, was. And then as American uh, deficit appetite grew, um, then we had to keep bumping up the allowance. Interestingly, in the 90s, when we were running budget surpluses, we still had to increase the debt limit uh, because of growing balances in the Social Security trust funds, for example. So this is something that we've just had to grapple with, even in sort of good budgetary times. So the nature of it has changed significantly over time, and it's just one of the things that you have to do so that Treasury can pay its bills. Um, I think both parties are increasingly getting um, uh, getting the the point that you have to raise or otherwise suspend the, the debt limit. It's costly to the federal government if we monkey around with it. There's a whole bunch of other risks uh, that attach to not increasing the debt limit. So my hope and expectation is that this will be drama free. Um, would. <laughs> um, um, so, so we'll see, but the, the debt limit has changed significantly over time. Historically, it's, it's always been a kind of a hot potato politically. Nobody wants to vote for this. It just looks bad. Right. The public doesn't, it doesn't for good reason know sort of the history and the operation of this. So it just sounds like you're being fiscally irresponsible when, the reason you have to raise the debt limit is because of decisions that have already been made. The debt's growing irrespective of, of what we what limit we artificially put on it. And it's growing for policy reasons that were in policy, changes in policy, laws, policies put in place that pr well preceded any debt limit vote. So it's just one of those things Congress is going to have to yeah. do. Yeah. Has, has, has this debt limit ever actually contr helped control federal spending no. or is it just sort of one of those mechanisms. Well, actually, you know what? Let me um let me couch that in the debt limit itself doesn't constrain policy choices because those choices are made before the debt limit has to has to be increased. However, the legislating a new debt limit increase has historically often involved deficit reduction deals. So, certainly in the 80s and 90s, a lot of the big uh, deficit packages, deficit reduction packages include were um, part of debt limit legislation. So this is Grant Rudman, uh, the 1990 budget deal, 93 budget deal, and some others all involved um, debt limit uh, standoffs as well. So the tradition of debt limit increases has often been one that includes um, deficit reduction. That's one of the reasons why folks are sometimes reluctant just to get rid of the debt limit altogether notwithstanding some of the challenges I already sort of talked about, is that it is one of the few times when Congress seems to have actually grappled with uh, the budget overall. Congress doesn't usually do that, right? We don't pass comprehensive budgets. Most of what Congress actually decides is an increasingly smaller share of the federal budget that's discretionary spending. So one of the reluctances of just junking the debt limit altogether is because it is one of those times when you kind of force Congress to have to deal with this. Mm -hmm. It forces them into action. So, what when can we expect something um, to actually move on on the debt limit? So, w one problem with with uh, the debt limit outlook now is that uh, projecting cash flows in the federal uh, federal cash flows is is tricky. There, I mean, this is billions and billions and billions of dollars, and right now the projections are suggesting that we won't have to 
increase the debt limit without risking default until um, maybe uh, fall. So right around the end of the uh, the fiscal year, when presumably there'll be another discussion going on about uh, funding the federal government. Um, but the the projections for when we're going to run out of room, essentially, for the debt limit keep. Um, we keep getting more time or we're told that we have more time. Anytime you tell Congress that they don't have to do something <laughs> today, you're sort of encouraging the worst behavior right. in legislation. <laughs> um, why do today what you can do tomorrow? Right. <laughs> All right. So let's talk about, you know, funding the government through the next fiscal year. Sure. That'd be nice. Uh, we don't seem to have real budgets anymore. I mean, I can't even tell you the last time that that the process actually you know, the budget went through the actual process. Um, it sounds like Congress just fights about how much to increase the defense versus non-defense spending every year. And that's really how it's framed. What's the latest on this? What is likely to happen this year? So the the latest is no significant news. The House and the Senate um, are both pretending like they're going to get their own figures for defense and non-defense. And so they're kind of making plans to write appropriations bills and, and um, some have already been moving um, at their own sort of defense and non-defense spending spending levels without actually um, meeting in the middle. Um, that is going to come later. And the, uh, the White House is reportedly negotiating um, on this, but it's not obvious what their priorities are. Um, I've various. I've heard lots of different stories um, uh, in terms of the administration's approach to this. My expectation is um, more continuing resolutions in the in the fall and 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 winter. Um, yet again, if. Congress can be let can let itself off the hook for making a hard decision. They will, um, you know, a couple months of CRs around the holidays certainly lets Congress do that. They have a grand tradition of kicking the can down the road, and this um, seems like a lovely opportunity for them to do that. So I imagine they will. I'm noticing a theme here about you know passing it off to the next well, day. <laughs> well, well, the, the the theme of this podcast is here's the three things if you gave Congress an entire year to legislate, here's the handful of things they would do. Yeah. And it's not obvious they will do them on time. So <laughs> this isn't a very high bar. So let's talk about that third one. Uh the host of programs mm -hmm. that will be in funding uh uh where the funding is expiring this year. First, what are these programs? Second, what happens if Congress fails to reauthorize so them? So there's, there's a handful of programs and um, that just their their authorizations expire. Uh, first is Temporary Assistance for Needy Families. Uh, this is the, the, the modern evolution of what used to be called um, welfare. Um, it is funded, but it needs uh, reauthorization. Um, this program was more at risk during the shutdown uh, because it is actually um, funded through discretionary funding, um, and that had run out. And their contingency fund was was in danger of, of uh, being drawn down. But my my sense is that this one should should uh, um, find the flood insurance program also needs reauthorization. Um, I'm. Uh, I understand that there's uh, legislation to accomplish this, and hopefully this will be non-controversial. Lastly, uh, the uh, XM Bank is expiring at the end of the year. It looked like Congress had made progress on a 
compromise uh, bill in the House Financial Services Committee. Uh, and then uh, Chairwoman Waters um, had to pull the bill over the objections of her own members. So that seems to be kind of a hot mess. So, um, but the the consequences of of not funding um, that I mean, on balance, it seems like the XM Bank may be one of those sort of um, necessary evils. Um, but we we've seen long periods of instability with respect to the XM Bank. Um, it wouldn't have the same consequence as say not. Uh, raising the debt limit or, or precipitating a government shutdown, for example. But it's just one of those things that um, will require some congressional attention um, unless we expect the XM to sort of revert to its um, just kind of zombie mode that it was right. on for a couple of years. Yeah, the Export-Import Bank always seems to be one of those kind of con- controversial topics out there. Yeah, it just it doesn't it doesn't have a lot of ideological uh friends um because it is one of these uh it's imperfect from a sort of pure sort of optimal economic policy standpoint sub essentially subsidizing uh industries when presumably private finance should be doing that and then so that so there's problems from the conservatives and then certainly there's problems uh from the progressives for any for any number of reasons so it just doesn't have a a natural ideological home, but from a pragmatic standpoint, um, the world is is far removed from any sort of textbook explanation of of markets uh, at work. Other other major trading partners have export credit agencies, uh, so it's just one of those things. I think the U.S. Um, it, like I said, a necessary evil. So so long as that's the case, we should just go about uh, authorizing this federal agency to keep doing its business. Mm-hmm. All right. So that's that's what Congress needs to do. Um, let's switch gears for a, a moment and talk about what Congress should be doing. Uh, I don't think you can have a conversation about the budget without that list is about longer. talking about, yes, <laughs> about the budget outlook. I've no, I know you've written about it. You produce those chart books every every quarter for 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 them, um, and it always seems to be showing that the debt is 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 coming is coming home, um, and that we have to deal with it. So, what are the key t- takeaways from our current fiscal situation? So, the Congressional Budget Office, that's uh, the probably the most respected uh, sort of budget forecasting outfit here in D.C. Uh, they're nonpartisan. Uh, everybody uses their numbers. They uh, just projected that the debt will reach about uh, one and a half times the size of the economy um, over um, basically the next 35 years. That um, is largely unchanged in terms of the relative magnitude of the projected debt. Um, we have a debt problem. We've, we're staring at this uh coming our way and we're doing nothing. Um, like I said, it would be great if Congress made sure that we paid our bills on time and kept the government open. Um, that's the hope of what <laughs> Congress can achieve. Um, that's a pretty low bar. None of that actually deals with the fundamental uh, budget challenges that we have. And that's a, largely driven by the fact we have an older society and we've made large commitments to their retirement and health care uh, in retirement, and those costs are growing. Mm-hmm. 
those are the entitlement programs yeah. you're speaking of. So that's essentially how we got here is yeah. all of these promises for Social Security and Medicare well, or Medicaid. Um, that's a complicated question. The how we got here uh-huh. is essentially the, the debt we have right now is the net result of every past fiscal decision. So um, the how we got here is, is much more complicated. And, and um, however we got here, we are here. And the future risks to the budget aren't necessarily those of the past. So some of those budget deals I talked about from the 90s, et cetera, back when people used to talk about balanced budgets and how great that was, the federal budget was a lot different. Um, even back in the 90s, the share of federal spending devoted to entitlements was significantly smaller. Um, the share of spending devoted to uh, things, you know, domestic discretionary programs, so it's, you know, education and infrastructure and research and this, that, and the other was a bigger chunk of the federal budget, which meant Congress could actually change that on an annual basis. Now, about two-thirds of the federal budget is entitlement spending and interest. Congress can't really change that quickly. Uh, you can make benefit changes, um, but those to actually realistically get those through, it's gonna you'd have to do them incrementally and uh, allow those time to take hold. Mm-hmm. Um, that's one of the just the nature, the changing nature of and composition of federal spending means that the solutions that worked in the past aren't going to work in the future. Yeah. So this next question, I probably can guess the answer to it based off of our conversation about what Congress needs to do. Um, but if this is such a big problem, why isn't anybody fixing it? It's too hard. Yeah. Um, it's not in anybody's interest to propose raising taxes and cutting spending which is what you have to do to reduce the deficit. Um, if you look uh, at what um, what was President Trump's message for his uh, winning campaign was, I'm not touching your Social Security and your Medicare, and I'm going to give you a massive tax cut. Mm-hmm. If you look at what the left is, is, is saying, it's we're going to expand entitlements mm-hmm. well, well in excess of the capacity or their proposed tax increases. So both political um, parties are making the argument to the American people, which is, yes, you can, in fact, consume way more government than you're willing to pay for. That's why we have big deficits. <laughs> That's why we have debt. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're clearly headed for some sort of a fiscal and economic catastrophe with this. <laughs> and and as you just said, yeah. nobody's doing anything because it's not politically uh, it's not politically, uh, you know, feasible. Um, so what's it going to take for a Congress or a president or any president to uh, to do something on this? You have to make it in the political interest of representatives to to sell the solution to the American people. Um, this is just a classic problem where you are talking about future risks. People have risks today, right? People have bills to pay. They have... Um, other concerns that are weighing on them today. And now somebody's going to come and tell them, oh, well, we're going to make um, your life more expensive. I get why that's not appealing. So it's not just um, sort of just raw irresponsibility. There is a um, there are competing priorities. It's my concern, though, is just that the the risks associated with running up the debt, and if we wait so long, we'll end up having significant costs for the for uh, for people, and in particular, vulnerable populations. So it's just a difficult 
problem right. to have to basically tell people to eat your veggies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so in, in, in your mind, where would a good starting point be to fix some of these debt issues? So the American Action Forum just participated in the Solutions Initiative. Uh, it's a, a program run by the Peterson Foundation that convened seven think tanks uh, from across the political spectrum to come up with solutions to address the debt. And our proposal was, um, I thought, a balanced proposal that um, involves uh, tax reform and involves significant changes to entitlements. And we managed to get the budget into a long-run balance. Um, but it involved um, very difficult decisions. Um, it involved decisions that this is the this was the third time we we did it. We do it every couple of years. It involved decisions that I didn't want to make last time around, but just waiting um, has made tackling the debt more difficult. CBO recently put out some numbers that that show that essentially the longer you wait, the harder tackling the debt gets. If you wait uh, uh, just a few years, essentially the problem gets fifty percent harder. The num the relative scale of tax changes and spending changes that you would need to accomplish the same sort of budget target, um, that gets steeper the closer you get to that target. That's mm -hmm. that's no great surprise. But when you're talking about how much more you're going to tax Americans or how much more expensive federal services are going to be, that really matters. Yeah. So as we wrap up here, uh, we like to talk about something you know a little bit more fun and personal just to get to know you a little bit better. Um, one thing I found interesting is that you recently testified before Congress for the first and then the second and then a third time this year. Yeah, it's been a good run. Yeah. <laughs> so the first thing I have to ask is how do you prepare for something like that? Because sitting in front of all those members of Congress, you know, has to be uh, sort of a daunting task. I, I, I got have gotten very good advice from my, my colleagues here. Particularly Doug Holtake and our, our our president, who testifies all the time, sort of just how you kind of conduct yourself in these um, in these hearings. Um, so I just got some very good practical advice from from him, and I got great help from from my other colleagues just doing sort of practice questions, just so I don't publicly embarrass myself. Um, and then the other is um, just in preparing your written testimony. Just that whole exercise, if you sort of um, take it seriously, um, you have to just in in basically writing your statement, you're acquainting yourselves with the with the facts. You're um, having to synthesize your arguments, get supporting data, um, and so just the act of of writing the testimony is very good preparation in in my view. And the 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 rest is um, just being willing to uh, listen to the questions in good faith and be be humble about um, the answers that you try to give Congress. So um, when a Congress, um, uh, when a member of Congress asks a question, um, I presume that they're they're asking in good faith. And my job there is to give them the best answer that I can. Um, not to be uh, my role in these hearings is is usually is not to be an advocate. Per se, it's um, just to provide um, information and data as best I can. I usually I don't try to go there to try to argue for Congress to do something. That's kind of their job. Every single day, they they have advocates in front of them telling them to do something. Mm -hmm. So my job is just to give um, sort of my my best um, expert views on the on the uh, the subjects before the committee. Right. So for for all of us who have not had this honor 
to uh, testify. What's the most surprising thing you found? Well, you know, I I think most when when I sort of talk to like you know, of course, when I get invited to do a hearing, I of course tell my mother, <laughs> <laughs> and um, but there's sort of the practical reality of 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 hearings. You know, people may think, oh well, Congress is convening a hearing to to get um you know to for finding of fact and the the practical reality is when you when you look at a, uh at how a hearing plays out you know most members sort of just come in they sort of say their statement and then and then leave um so the you know this this isn't uh you know uh like a watergate hearing or or a um they're not all as contentious as, you know, no. like a Supreme Court hearing or something no, of a the, confirmation you know, hearing. I, when I go to these hearings, I'm a I'm a uh, just a think tank guy. Right. You know, I come in and, you know, we talk about credit subsidy rates and things like that. I'm not a um, somebody that any of the members really want to beat up on or, or um, you know, anything like that. So so my role in these hearings is a lot different than the kind of hearings that make the news. Awesome. Well, Gordon, thanks for joining us today. Uh, hey, thanks for having me. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. I'd also like to encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes um, from this episode and also follow us on social media to hear more about AAF.